Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. But we went back to the kids' schools a month after having brought them into the museum and we only saw four objects together and we had lots of fun and we discussed and explored lots of things. They could remember amazing details about what they'd seen. And that stuck with me, the fact that a month after experience, someone can still recall precise details of what they saw, but also how they felt when they were there. Um, so it's, yeah, it's about creating those long lasting memories that maybe stay with us for a very long time. Are you interested in adding multi-day to your day tour business? Are you looking to understand growth and scale strategies in the multi-day world? Looking to finally crack the technology stack you need to organize, automate, and grow your business? Then join Tourpreneur in Seville, Spain for Tourpreneur Connect. Sponsored by We Travel, Yuli, and Abac DMC Spain, November 27th to 30th, 2023, for an event unlike any other in our industry. Open to strictly 100 operators, Pete, Mitch, Chris, and other industry experts will guide you through the do's, don'ts, twists, and turns of running a multi-day tour business. Not only that, Tourpreneur are giving back as we will be bringing in local suppliers and businesses to help us run the event. We're also opening up to a number of locally-based tour operators who can attend for free. So join Tourpreneur in Seville for Connect November 27th to 30th, 2023. And join us for an unforgettable experience of learning and connection in one of Europe's most unforgettable cities. Visit tourpreneur.com slash connect for more info. Hello, everybody. It's Mitch Bach back with another episode of Tourpreneur. And today we have a very special five-hour episode where we discuss tour guides. I was waiting for a reaction from my guest, Claire. <laughs> five hours? Not sure I could talk for five, but we'll see. I feel like we have in the past because this is a topic that my guest today, Claire Bound of the Thinking Museum, and I have in common a passion for tour guides coming out of our experience of being guides and training guides and looking at the challenges and the opportunities for the way in which a guided experience can become something transformative or engaging on just a much more deeper level. There's a lot of ways to talk about it and we're going to do what we love to do best and talk about it and see where the conversation goes. So Claire Bound, it is a treat to have you on Tourpreneur today. Welcome. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Claire, let's get the basics out of the way. Tell me a little bit about your path into our tours and activities industry and what you do in it. 
Yeah, so I'll start with now because that's probably easier. So I'm a I'm a museum educator, I'm a trainer, facilitator, possibly a coach as well. Um, I have my own podcast, uh, The Art Engager, which you've been on. Um, I train uh, guides, mainly museum guides and guides from heritage associations these days. But I train them how to um, engage their audiences, how to connect with their audiences, but also how to engage with art and objects. Um, so that's what I do now. But um, over the years, I think I've kind of had this underlying passion, as you said in your introduction, for what makes a great guided tour, what makes a great guided experience, and what makes a great guide. So I started out, so my first role um, out of uni years and years ago in the 90s, I was a tour manager, and uh, which I know we have in common as well, but I've also worked in educational travel, I've worked for a number of tour operators, and I've also worked as a guide in various capacities as well. So I've been a city guide, a walking tour guide, a museum guide, I've worked with families, adults, kids, school groups. So yes, I say I've got a fair amount of experience, but I, I would say it's all all drawn together by this fascination with with the experience itself and how we can really, really connect with the people we're working with. Fantastic. I do love that about you. I love that you've seen this industry and a guided experience from all the angles, from the business angle, from the spending 10 days with cranky travelers angle to what kind of impact can you have in two hours? 60 yeah. minutes with someone. Why don't we start with where you are today in museums? Because I think it's maybe a helpful beginning point. I know I shared probably the thought for a long time that many in our audience have, which is a guided museum experience. I take a free tour at the Louvre with a docent that walks to six paintings and tells me, about the artist and how to interpret the painting. So I'm curious, I guess, how your training or your approach differentiates from that, what I call, maybe I'll call it the classic idea of what a museum tour looks like. Yeah, so yeah, that's a classic sort of interpretation of a guided tour, a traditional view, perhaps. Um, I perhaps work with maybe a more up-to-date version, which is based on a discussion-based uh, model of guided tours. So this is when um, it's a two-way conversation rather than a monologue. Uh, you're asking questions, you're getting your participants, your audience, your clients involved. They're curious enough to ask you questions um, and you're guiding them to discover things for themselves. So it's very much uh, the participants are active rather than passive. Um, and there is information that is shared, but it's shared at appropriate times and in small amounts, or maybe in response to a question from someone in the group. So it's, it's still a guided tour. It's still a guided experience, but perhaps it's more along the lines of how people perhaps might want to engage today when they're in the museum, when they're in historic buildings or heritage attractions, that people want to be involved. People want to have a voice, people want to have a say, um, and they want to be included. And the other side of that is that not only are you involving your audience, you're also making these experiences more memorable for them so that they will actually go away and they'll remember some moments in the experience. Um, 
studies show that if you're um, telling them lots and lots of facts, lots of dates, lots of times, lots of uh, factual information, those aren't the things necessarily they're going to remember. They may remember them in their short-term memory, but long-term memory, they're going to remember things like the connections and the moments and the experiences. So yes, that's the long answer to your question. It's, uh, it's very much a two-way process. I am really interested in unpacking that statement, though, because you and I share a love of all of these words. What makes something memorable? What makes a true connection? And before we get there, I want to start on a little bit of a higher or surface level and talk about this word information and the other I word, which is interaction. You said two things. One, people love to interact. They love to have their voice heard. Agreed. Uh, I think all humans and all of us listening to this agree with that. And yet the objection I always, always, always receive to this from guides, from operators is the following. I am selling somebody a service of offering my knowledge of something. They're not paying for the chance to listen to a bunch of people talk about each about themselves. They're paying to learn about the places that I'm giving them that I'm that I'm revealing for them. And on that level, a secondary, I guess, objection or a corollary to that is people, when they start talking, get unruly, get crazy, get cranky, become know-it-alls. And it opens up a can of worms the minute you sort of allow for something interactive. So how do we unpack that? How do we unpack the conflict of the two eyes so I think I'm going to answer the first one first, which was more about, um, is it still a learning experience if people are involved and people are discovering things together? Well, absolutely, it's still a learning experience. Um, I'm not anti-information at all. I'm not anti-knowledge. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that if you create a discussion-based program, it means that you're not sharing your knowledge, not sharing as much information. What I'm asking people to do is to think about the information they're sharing and think about it strategically. Use it in a productive way. Use it to engage people. So it's it's not that I'm anti-information. It's about using information as a tool. And that's, that's the difference. So it will still be a learning experience. And there are plenty of opportunities at the right moment to share your knowledge, your information, to make it that learning experience. When we break that down, it, it feels to me like the, the important condition of the opportunity for an audience to interact is how you set the stage, how you, how you ask a question that leads to a productive dialogue and not, and not shut that down. I'm wondering if you could tell me about strategies or thoughts behind question asking that a guide might use to make sure it doesn't go in a direction that is unproductive or un, uncollaborative. Yeah. So um, I do a lot of training around questioning because it's really at the heart of what we do. If you can ask great questions and make people feel at ease enough to answer those questions, then you're on a win, basically. Um, but it's not just about asking questions, it's about setting those conditions for it as well. And those happen right at the start. So setting the conditions so people feel comfortable to be able to answer your questions. And this may take place in your introduction, where you put people at ease, where you find out 
where people are coming from, whether they've been here before, who they are, what their goals are, all, all that sort of finding out and telling them a little bit about the, pro the program is setting the expectations for what to come. So when I um, teach about questioning, I talk about creating this culture of questioning. And that's a place where I can ask questions and they're open-ended questions that open up conversation. They're also closed questions that find out information. But at the same time, I'm trying to encourage questions from my guests, from the people in my audience. Because if they're asking me questions, I know they're engaged, I know they're curious, and I know exactly what they want to find out more about. So it's, again, a two-way process of creating this atmosphere, this warm and friendly atmosphere where people feel they can ask you questions and you're asking them questions in the right way at the right time. What kind of questions should you be asking? So on the whole, if you're in your introduction stage, you might be asking, um, say, closed questions. These are very short questions, yes or no, factual answers. Have you been here before? Where do you come from? Um, but as you move more into the main body of your guided tour, you move on to your first stop, you want to use questions that will open up conversation. And these are open-ended questions, quite often beginning with what or how, uh, sometimes why. Uh, these questions really stimulate sort of thinking, allow people to discover things. And also, if you ask them in the right way, allow for lots of ideas to be put out. So if we're looking at an artwork, for example, uh, we might ask uh, what's going on in this artwork? What do you see? What do you think about the story? What are you wondering about? All those questions are very open and they allow for lots of possibilities, multiple interpretations. Um, and this allows people to feel they can contribute. I've got something to say here. So you're not just setting the stage uh, for people to say things, but you're also setting the stage for people to feel confident to take part. And that's part of the process is that kind of creating that safety, that trust, and also making people feel confident enough to, to participate. I like that word staging. It's it, it it reminds me of the United States National Parks and the way that they've changed the training for their interpreters or their docents, their park ranger guides around the national parks. They've changed it from very information-based approach to uh, what they call audience-centered interpretation. And when they're talking about asking questions, I think they talk about red light, green light, and yellow light questions. And what it comes down to is essentially looking at the kinds of questions you're asking and starting with ones that are beginner questions that are too revealing. You know, think of it as like a date maybe where you don't start with, uh, tell me about your mother. Uh, you might start with, you know, get, let me get to know your background. Do you think about it in a similar way that there's sort of a progression over the course of a guided or facilitated experience in which the questions become more impactful or meaningful? Absolutely. And you're trying to find out more about the people you're with as you go throughout the guided tour as well. So whether you're with them for an hour or three hours or even longer, you're trying to find out information from them that can help you to personalize the tour. But you're also trying to, and, in, and this happens sometimes with people who aren't so um, keen to participate, you're trying to gently challenge them to take part as well. And 
I always say that we encourage participation, but we don't require it. So you're encouraging people to want to take part and you're stimulating that curiosity. And that can happen throughout the program. Um, you can also think about it in terms of your stops as well. So um, I, I get people to think about the number of stops that they have in a program and then think about where they're going for their first stop, what kind of questions they might ask there. A first stop is normally everyone's quite new. They may not know each other. We wouldn't ask too challenging questions. In the middle of a program, perhaps, we might stay a little bit longer at that stop. We might ask perhaps some deeper questions. And at the end, we're all about, you know, helping people to sort of signal this is the last the last call, the last stop, uh, looking inward, turning outwards, all those sorts of things that signal it's the end of the tour. So yes, there is a progression throughout that you can think about as well. I love that because it means you need to think holistically about your tour, the shape of it, the energy flow of it, the way in which it works on a physical and a psychological level. Um, when you think about it from that vantage point, you start to notice whether there might be a lack of variety or a similarly structured didactic way that every stop happens that sort of wears or bores the traveler, even if your guide is the most entertaining guide out there. I think this word entertainer has become the holy grail in general of what a great guide is. I see it all the time in the tourpreneur group. We train our guides to be entertainers. And it's because we want our guests to have a good time. For you, what are the words that you think of when you think of a great guide, besides, of course, the entertaining fashion in which their information is delivered? I love that you use the word entertaining. It's such a positive word. Other words that I would um, spring to mind are obviously engaging. And engaging can mean so many things. It can be quite a vague word. But if you think about engaging in terms of uh, how someone is whether they're engaging with their audience, with the people that are with them, uh, whether they're able to engage them with what they're looking at. So that could be an object or a building. Um, and other words I would think of, think words around um, connection. Um, there's a lot of connecting we can do with our audience, but also with the content, with the information that we're sharing, uh, with the history, maybe with the, the, all the knowledge that we're sharing, but also personal qualities. Those those all too often described as soft skills, you know, being warm, being friendly, being welcoming. And quite often that helps us to create the perfect space within which that participation can occur because you've got to make people feel comfortable and people feel welcome. So yeah, there's so many um, different qualities. Um, I think in, when I interviewed you, I asked you to list some of the qualities of a good guide and uh, you came back with, um, uh, well, I could list all 27 of them, but yes, there are, there are so many of them, aren't there? So if you, if you think about them and all the studies that have been done, there was a, a great study that was done purely about the profession of museum guiding a few years back and that listed, I think, 39 qualities. So yes, there are so many different ways that you can be an excellent guide, so many hats that you can wear. But as you say, it's 
what's at the core of it all. For me, it's engaging engagement and connection. Those two things, I think, really drive what I do and how I'd like to train people um, those sort of skills in as well. You speak, you speak to this sort of idea that the soft skills get dismissed a lot. And it's so funny because it goes against every psychological study that's out there, which is that people aren't actually simply listening for do they know their stuff, but actually the overwhelming majority of the feeling or impression that they have of you as a guide or as a human being is how do you make them feel? Do you make them feel welcome? Do you make them feel a part of what we're doing together? Uh, and sometimes the important questions are the small talk questions that you're asking along the route between stops, the stuff that happens outside of the script and outside of the moment, the, the stops. I'm wondering what your, your thoughts are in terms of kind of the, 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 the idea of like what an, an operator should be hiring for and training for when you look at that holistic picture of this word engagement. Yeah. And I think so often we hire for qualifications and knowledge. We may hire for uh, someone's expert knowledge in art or art history or uh, the fact that they've got uh, a master's in this or the PhD in archaeology. It, that's about the content. And yes, you need to have the knowledge. You need to have that information. Um, I see it all too often in trainings as well, um, especially with uh, museums. They're very happy to train people in the knowledge, in the information regarding an exhibition. But how often are they investing and spending money on these skills, which are so important to connect with their audiences? So these this engagement, this um, being warm and friendly, this uh, ability to connect to people is so, so important. But, and I think people actually make up their mind about you probably in the first five minutes. So your introduction is even more important. So it's thinking about um, how you are with people, how you connect with people, your ability to read a room, to read body language, but also your skills of observation as well. So I always say great guides are great observers because they're scanning the room the whole time, looking to see what's going on. They're seeing what's going on in the actual organization or the place where they're working or in the environment, but they're also scanning the group and seeing what's happening with the group and noticing little micro expressions and signs and using that as a clue. But they're also using that as a test bed and experimenting what happens when I share this information here. Yesterday, I shared it in a different spot. What happens if I share it here today? What's gonna happen with the group? How will they respond? So yeah, I think is having that great ability to connect with people, to care about them, to really show that attention towards them. And that can happen in the off moments as well as the on moments when you're at a stop but also having this kind of, I think sometimes a maybe a playful attitude towards it as well. How can I keep my passion and enthusiasm up by experimenting with how I share information or what questions I ask um, and how I am with the group? See what happens and then just note it. Um, say what worked well, what you could work on for next time and then 
move on to the next tool. So yeah, it's, it's having that attitude, I think, of being a bit more uh, perhaps playful with your tools and experimenting a little bit. Every time I open Instagram or Lyft or any of the 932 apps on my phone, it seems like the buttons are a slightly different color or in a slightly different shape. And it's because user interface designers know this very well, that design is iterative. It is a lot of testing on very small levels and learning from reactions and data, whether it works or not. And there's no, I, I, both you and I are professional guide trainers and there's really no real answer to any, anything except, well, let's run some experiments and see, see what happens besides some basic things like don't talk softly in a very busy street. Uh, beyond that locations, it's, it's, it's surprising to learn through experiments, what happens and how a group reacts to the same question or the same talk. And it, it, it seems like there isn't that culture of experimentation that exists in so many other domains in tour design. It seems like it's kind of set and forget. Yeah. And I think, well, if you're talking about hiring as you were, you think you want people in your organization who are able to improvise as well. They're able to pivot at a moment's notice, think on their feet, which is, is a great skill to have, but also to be able to have, as you say, that, that. Um, feeling of experimentation. So you're really looking perhaps to hire people who are not afraid of change, who perhaps embrace learning and think about their, their guided tour as, as not just a way to engage people and perhaps make connections and definitely maybe create memories, but also as a way to experiment and learn with their own practice and how they might um, engage with people. Did you know Tourpreneur also has a Facebook community of over 7,000 tour operators? If you are not a member, then search for Tourpreneur on Facebook and join a thriving community of tour operators and other travel professionals, all of whom learn from each other as well as from Chris, Mitch, Pete, and many other industry experts. By becoming a member, you will be notified first of any events, meetups, and exclusive content. Join the Tourpreneur community today. Facebook.com slash group slash Tourpreneur. That's, that's brilliant. That word improvisation is so important to what I think makes a great guide because if you are a type of guide suddenly in which it's about your ability to facilitate and engage, then you can't be perfectly prepared at any moment uh, because humans are humans and you're you and things happen. And that, that, that improvisatory spirit is great. A lot of people don't have that or they think they don't have it. I've found it really important to essentially set the stage that nobody has what it takes to be a guide, that we all have deficits or opportunities in our personality, in our skill set to grow together and that that growth is one of the core features of, of what this job offers you. Yeah. I don't think anybody really wants to be in the same place saying the same things on two days in a row. You know, that horrible feeling when you find yourself, you're saying exactly the same time in the same place as you did yesterday. And having this ability to improvise 
or being more playful with how you view your knowledge and information that you're sharing just makes your job so much more enjoyable and rewarding as well because you're able to then think, I had a completely different conversation today with my clients. It was the same tour. It was pretty much the same conditions. The museum was busy. The streets were busy wherever you were doing your tour. But the conversations were different because you cared enough to think about this is a different group. I'm going to ask different questions, which will actually be relevant and meaningful to them. So, yeah, I think it's um, it's about wanting our tours for ourselves to be as engaging as possible as well um, and not having that monotony of um, doing the same thing every day. I love this. Of course, we agree with each other. And yet I meet a lot of people who don't agree with this. And it's because I receive these two objections. One is I'm offering my customers a product that has this, 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 and this in it. And I need a guarantee that my company of 15 guides delivers a quality standard of this product that has a set things that I'm promising. How do I open the door to this type of facilitated, improvisatory, engaging, co-created experience and make sure that I deliver on that promise to my customer? Great question. Um, it's perhaps if you think about it in terms of information in, in terms of what information you're sharing, how you're sharing it and when you're sharing it. So if you have a body of information that you have to get across in a specific tour, what do you want to think about is what information you're sharing and really narrow it down and think, is this information relevant to today's audience? Because some of the information in that guided tour may not be relevant to say a group of teens as it is relevant to a group of adults. Um, so you're thinking also about what you share and how much you share as well. Do I need to share all this information? Perhaps I can share slightly less information. Perhaps I could kill some of my darlings, which is one of my favorite expressions, because we always tend to overshare thinking that perhaps we're giving people the benefit of our knowledge, where in fact, we're giving them too much information that they can't process. So really think carefully about how much information you're sharing. Um, every minute of information you're sharing, people will need at least a minute to process it. So again, thinking about quantity, maybe you want to limit it. At this stop, I'm going to share three main pieces of information. That's what's that's what I'm going to share. That's my goal. Maybe if you deviate it from it slightly, that's bonus information. But the three main pieces of information, they're your, your, your foundation, shall we say. They're the pieces of information that you need to get across to people. And then you also want to think about how you share that information. So are you always going to be delivering it in a monologue? A monologue is the worst way to share information. I say this all the time. I'm very anti-monologue. Um, people only remember 5% of what you're saying. So you want to think about different ways that you might share it. So um, I advocate for things like a mini share, which is like when you share some information, but it's sandwiched between some questions. So you might lead into that with uh, a few questions. It might be quite discussion-based with your group. You're asking them some questions about what they're looking at, what they think it might be. Then you'll share some information. 
maybe some historical information, maybe some juicy information that will really make them curious. And then you'll follow it up with a question. And that question really gets them to think about what they've just learned. So that information is not just in one ear and out the other ear. They're really thinking about it. So sometimes um, it might be a question like, given that information, does that help you to understand this anymore? This is quite often a question we ask with art. But you can ask any sort of question just as a follow-up to get people thinking about their information. So just some ideas there to think about how, when, and what you're sharing. And that, that's a really important thing. Be really specific about what you're sharing and make sure it's relevant and meaningful to your group. I love that. You said the M word, monologue. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share another swear word, an S word, which is script. So I'm haunted still to this day by an event that I spoke at. I spoke on storytelling. You and I share this passion, and I feel like we often are saying essentially the same thing in different language with different words. But I was on a panel in which I was talking about storytelling and talking about what it means to sort of facilitate a story that's told from not only your information, your perspective, but also that of others, to talk about the responsibility of inclusivity, of diversity, of um, just these, these lenses that we place on the kind of stories that we tell. And that for me, one of the most important words that I think about is sensitivity in the sense that we're sensing what our audience is responding to, we're sensitive to the story itself, we are aware of all of the contexts of what we're talking about. So I'm going on this big rant. I mean, lovely panel discussion. And this man stands up in the middle. Um, we didn't say any questions. I think he felt like it was time to offer his opinion. And he said, this is all fine and airy-fairy in this conference room, but this would never work on an actual tour. He said, I have tour guides who are in college or fresh out of college, I let them start to decide what they're going to say and ask the questions and uh, figure, you know, figure things out on their own. They're going to mess it all up. And the only way to run a tour company is to come up with a great tour and a great script and make sure that they deliver it in an entertaining way. So I was kind of publicly spanked by this man and and uh, it haunts me because I know that thought is out there. I know I get dismissed and we probably get dismissed by people who say, well, that's that's cute, but that's not kind of my tours. And so I really want to dive into the way in which a company like that, you've got 20-year-olds who have a lot of learning about life to do. They're fun, but the tour doesn't necessarily call from their perspective for this level of audience participation. Where do you begin and do you begin going down this road? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we started our discussion uh, based on uh, a post I put, I think I put it on LinkedIn, about a tour I'd had in the Met Museum with a very well-known uh, tour company. and. Uh, I was on this tour and I had great expectations. They were renowned for having fantastic guides. Anyway, so this tour was, uh, was great, except for a few things. Um, so the, the, 
the tour guide was uh, a fantastic storyteller. She was able to tell really good stories, but I could tell they were scripted. And that's one of the, the big problems with scripts is your audience knows. Your audience always knows, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. They will know when something's scripted. Um, she told fantastic stories. It all been written really well. There were moments for looking at certain things in certain ways, and it was cleverly done. However, one, we knew it was scripted. And the second thing was there were no pauses. There was no room to breathe within this program for the audience to participate. It was it felt rushed, it felt pre-programmed, and it didn't feel natural. And if, we, if we're talking about the future, then yes, I mean, I could get a wonderful audio tour to give me that same experience. But what I really want is the ability to be able to ask people questions and to be able to pick their brains. Because some of the people who are leading these fantastic tours around the world, and I've seen, I've observed tours all over the, all over the world over the last 20 odd years, and they have an amazing wealth of knowledge. And I want to be able to pick their brains. So thinking about it in a different way, it's really starting with thinking, how can I make this tour more of an interactive experience? And maybe for the company that really relies heavily on scripts, you want to think small and you may think, okay, with maybe with one stop, we'll allow the guides to interpret it in their own way. Maybe give them a format, a structure, um, I work quite often with thinking routines, which are small formats that help you think about the questions you're going to ask, uh, but giving them a, a framework to fall back on and then testing and seeing what happens, getting feedback, seeing what the audience, how the audience responds. And this is both for the guide to do, for the guide to be able to observe everyone in the group and see what happens and how they feel but also for the operator to do, to say, well, you know, how, how might this work in the future? Because believe it or not, the, the experiences that are going to be booked in the future are the ones that have involvement from the audience. It's, we can get AI, we can get audio tours to do the one-way one monologues if we want, but if we want a real human experience, it has to involve interaction, and that means questioning, that means getting people involved um, and creating more engaging moments. Otherwise, we may as well just listen to a recording. Good job. It's 2023 and um, nobody is allowed to appear on any podcast without mentioning AI. So good. I got it in there. I get bonus points. <laughs> you did. You did. It's <laughs> word of the day. There's people doing shots every time they hear that word. So it's a fun <laughs> drinking game for 2023. Uh I love that response. My first podcast guests um, after taking Entrepreneur were two phenomenal storytellers, and we talked about this issue. Um, they were they're they're primarily guides and uh, once an operator as well. And what was interesting in my conversation that came from that conversation with Lee Jamison and Jazz Dotton was the idea of what a guide training looks like from the operator's point of view. So. And and it and it and it dovetails really nicely with what you just shared about scripts. First of all, I love that I get often this defense of the script, and yet 
in the English language. Scripted is a, pejor a universally pejorative term. So I don't understand this disconnect where you're creating something that is scripted and yet you defend to the death the importance of the script. I think a gentle nudge in the direction towards the unscripted is thinking about the way in which the creation of the tour works. And part of that can be an act of co-creation between the operator and the guides, maybe in a very limited sense. But if I've got a group of 20-year-olds, well, maybe part of their first job is to go and ask their grandparent or uh, somebody that they might know was alive in World War II or whatever, you know, scene, you know, whatever scene it was and, and get that personal story and say, well, we're going to take that and we're going to work on it together. And at a certain moment, I want you to ask the audience if they have any personal connections to World War II, uh, to this battlefield or this site. And, and we're going to teach you some of the principal mechanics of you sharing your story in a way that facilitates a small dialogue, nothing big, but small, a small injection of co-creation into an, an otherwise largely sort of organized or scripted tour, a small beginning point. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a fantastic idea. Quite often in, in museums, in the trainings that I do, quite often they're a one-off training. I'd love for more follow-up trainings and the museums I work with that have more successfully embedded this way of working, and there are many, are the ones that have a series of uh, trainings so that the museum guides can practice in between. And what I always recommend, whether it's a one-off training or a series of trainings, is for groups of guides to get together and to workshop some of the ideas. And that may be in a museum presenting an artwork, or it may be if it's on a walking tour, um, everybody presents a different stop because you're all learning from each other and you've all got distinctly unique styles, distinctly unique ways of presenting, of facilitating, of being with your audience. And you learn so much from these experiences. Um, you learn more than you would from watching a video or reading a book. Um, but yeah, as you say, go out and find those personal stories as well, because they are the things that are really going to enhance your tours and really bring it to life for people. And those are the moments that don't feel scripted. And a lot of what I do, I was thinking about this the other day, a lot of what I do is obviously I'm teaching people methods to, to engage and connect with audiences and with art and with objects. But a lot of it is around confidence training and it's having confidence in these new methods that basically ask you to do a little bit of improv, to go where you might not have gone before, to go off piste, to go off script and to do some different things. So I do a lot of work around building people's confidence that they can do this and that it does become easier over time and practice really helps. And it's it's a lot of change management, really, just changing the way people think and changing their mindsets about how a, a good guided tour might work. So, yes, lots lots to discuss there. I love that word confidence. It's also the confidence of the operator to see their training methods in-house and the development of their tour products in a slightly different way to give them the confidence to create some small changes in the way they hire and then train their guides to get up and going on the tour. I, I know I worked with um, 
one operator last year and we developed what I just called almost like a wiki of knowledge that was created by all of the guides together. A common, I mean, it was simple. We used Notion and added everybody as team members. And there was no longer a single way to tell the story of a place, but instead the perspectives and the knowledge and the fun facts and the strange discoveries of all of the guides pooled together to become a kind of a compendium, a, a, a lake you can swim in and what you, the, okay, I'm mixing metaphors, but then the fish that you pull out of it after you're, after you've swum for a while, you've got to like immerse yourself in it. And then you get into a boat and then I guess you fish and you bring, you bring what you're passionate about, but what, God, I'll have to edit that or maybe I'll leave that in. But what ended up happening was everybody felt part of something together on just yeah. a human level. And then every guide then took a sense of ownership out of, 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 of what they pulled out of this kind of common compendium. And they became more confident guides because they felt like this was theirs. And listen, it all fit into where they had to go. It was all about the seven stops of the tour, but there's a world of opportunity in each one of those stops of what can happen there. Yeah, it's just pooling that knowledge, isn't it? And all, I think all of this wonderful information is sitting in our heads, all the stuff that we've accumulated and learned over the years. And why not pool it? Why not share it with others so that they can benefit from those stories and also use it as a way to refresh your uh, program? I did a podcast recently about thinking about ways you can change it up for the new year so that you can constantly be innovating and thinking about how can I tell this story differently this year? How can I present it in a different way uh, so that it engages me as much as it engages my clients? Because if we're not engaged, that certainly comes across. Um, and I think as much as uh, clients can tell if you're reading a script or talking from a script, they can also tell if you're not engaged with what you're talking about. So that enthusiasm that you bring to the role, it's contagious and it will transfer over to your clients as well. So That museum tour that you had, I've had so many of those similar experiences. I leave really enjoying what I saw. And yet, if I'm honest, there's a certain hollowness to the experience or, or almost as if it was kind of a fast food experience. I really liked it. It was great, but I didn't think about it much a week later or two weeks later. If we look at kind of the techniques that, that you're sort of instilling, does it change for you what the goal of a guided experience is definitely i think if i look back to that experience in the met that i can remember the blue hippo i think it's the blue hippo yeah the blue hippo that's famous that's the one object i can remember nothing else and my overriding feeling of is of how rushed it was how fast it was that's the two things i remember so if we if we're thinking about creating experiences what do we want to leave people with what do we want to be in their long-term memory, not just their short-term memory. Short-term memory is great. They can go home, they can tell their friends, their neighbors, what they did, what they saw, how wonderful it was. But what about the long-term memories that they have, that warm feeling they have from visiting a certain place in a certain time? That's what I, I'm really keen to think about, how we can really create long-lasting memories. And I created a, 
a program 2011 um way back um way back when and it was with primary school students and we started with slow looking which you know i do a lot with uh, slow looking and i developed a method to help uh, structure these more discussion-based experiences but we went back to the kids' schools a month after having brought them into the museum and we only saw four objects together and we had lots of fun and we discussed and explored lots of things. They could remember amazing details about what they'd seen. And that stuck with me, the fact that a month after experience, someone can still recall precise details of what they saw, but also how they felt when they were there. Um, so it's, yeah, it's about creating those long lasting memories that maybe stay with us for a very long time. The type of nourishment you feel as a guide, when you start to understand that with these techniques, those long lasting memories become incredibly powerful and increase your value as a guide within a company. Um, God, I, there's a company I didn't, I, I stopped, I'm, you know, I don't guide anymore, but I. I got an email the other day from an operator who said, are you available for this tour? It's Jim and whatever, Jim and Susan, and they want you again as a guide. I had them nine years ago. That was nine years ago. And they 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 said, we want to travel with Mitch again. And I said, sorry, I'm surprised you even still have my email address. But I do remember working for that company. And what I remember was the company thought I was a celebrity, that I was something truly unique and special because all of my guests kept wanting more of me. But it's funny because, listen, very early on in my guiding, it was all about me. I tried to just be the most entertaining jazz hand version of a guide you could ever imagine. And, and I realized that I was exhausting myself and more so exhausting most of my guests. And I had this kind of aha moment where I realized the more I knew and the funnier I was, the less satisfying an experience I was giving. I realized that because I was putting too much into it. And I started to experiment. I mean, this was this was decade, almost two decades ago. Experiment with making the tour all about my guests. And I actually realized that I, I needed to know less and they felt more satisfied with what we had just been through together. These were walking tours back in Paris. And that was really my secret. I realized that was what I was doing a lot of that other guides weren't doing was really caring about the guests and asking them questions and and figuring out what they wanted out of this experience yeah. and then making that happen. Yeah. And it, I say this all the time. It's not about you. And quite often it can be. Um, it depends on the the organization, the, the company that you're working for, whether they put their guides on a pedestal or not, but it's really not about you. It's all about the people you're with. Um, and yes, I remember, I mean, I, I used to run my own um, tour company and I got a request a few weeks ago and I was tempted, seriously tempted. I don't guide anymore, but I remember the feeling I used to get after being with a group and having a great experience with them, getting to know them, really loving what I was showing them, whether it was, you know, outside in Amsterdam or inside a museum. And yeah, it, it can be a really quite addictive, lovely experience. So yeah, I can see why, you know, you might be tempted one day to come out of retirement. <laughs> I actually do secretly offer once in a while free experiences because I value also the experimentation. I don't ever want to be 
that teacher that shares something I learned 20 years ago, but it might not be relevant anymore. But also because it is trial and error, and I'm always learning new ways to interact with people. And this specifically for me is a thing that I think a lot about with children. Um, student travel is something very dear to my heart. It's where I got my start. Engaging with students, with children is very difficult because as any boy band celebrity knows, one day you're in, the next day you're dead in the water. Uh, their habits, their likes, the way they behave changes so quickly and evolves so quickly. You have children yourself. I have a puppy, so my knowledge is very theoretical. But I'm wondering how we might look at a lot of what we've been discussing and, and the way in which we can apply it to family travel, student travel, and does it change? Yeah, so I've been working a lot with them. Um, I've been doing quite a lot of trainings um, for teens um, recently in museums. Um, and I've done loads of family tours as well. But I wanted to share a quote with you first because um, uh, it might make you smile. But this quote is, um, working with teens is a lot like working with gravity. It's better to work with it rather than against it or with them rather than against them. So I love that quote because... Uh, quite a lot of um, work we do when we're working with uh, teenagers as well is based on our attitude. So I get people to think about what what are your what what comes to mind when you first think of the word teenager, because maybe that's coming across in your attitudes towards the people you're working with. Um, and I got an email this morning from someone who said I've got a tour with high school students next week and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to be with them because I'm used to being with adults. So again, I was talking about co-creation and participation, creating connections from the start, but also being yourself because teenagers can really sense, I have three teens at home, but they can really sense when you're not being yourself and you're trying to act cool and it just doesn't work. So that's the teen side of things, um, which is fascinating. They also like being engaged with big themes, global themes, things that are important in our society. So that's great to create, ask some questions around that. Um, but family tours, yes, um, I love family tours. I've still got drawings and letters from people I gave family tours to um, from years ago that I've kept. But that presents extra challenges because you're working with a variety of generations. You're working with adults, but you're also working with children. And those children may be anything on a tour I had with four kids right, from two up to 18. I once did a tour with nine children, which was uh, really, really quite challenging. I challenged those nine children to see uh, how long we could spend in front of a, an abstract work of art. And we managed 12 minutes. And the youngest was also, I think, three. And the eldest was 18. So that's all to do with asking them questions, keeping them curious, getting them to look. But with, with families as well, yes, um, you've got to think about um, how you're involving the adults. Are you involving the adults as much as the children? Are you focusing on the children or are you involving the adults? What type of tour is it in that respect? What kind of activities you can bring? What type of questions you can ask? Um, how you can add in variety? So maybe not just talking, but maybe bringing in um, so a variety of ways to work, maybe drawing, maybe sketching, maybe acting out, which is a lovely fun um, activity to do. 
but also thinking about how you might work in a in a fun, uh, competitive way, bringing in some gaming elements, having uh, perhaps one of the adults with one of the children and setting up teams and seeing who can find the most things in an artwork. All of these things help to bring families together. Um, and family tours, I think, are, are challenging, but are so rewarding as well. And you get that experience and you bring the family together. Um, it's incredible fun to do. That's 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 incredible and such great ideas there the teen is the extension of the adult problem which is they can sniff out inauthenticity so quickly and in in a certain sense what is a teen but an an an, an adult that hasn't learned our quote unquote ways of being an adult yet which is be polite pay attention even when you don't want to and so it's just maybe a little bit more honest version of how you're yeah. making adults feel yeah, I've one of my first jobs um, was I worked in educational travel, and we were bringing high school students over from the US over to Europe, and I was in charge of all the city guides. So this was in the 1990s, and I was going to, <laughs> I was going to Vienna, say Amsterdam was one of my cities as well, and talking to the guides and asking them in the 1990s to be more interactive, and. This was unheard of. I mean, city guides, especially those that hopped on a on a bus with the microphone, just it was a two hour monologue that went on and on. And these were high school students and they weren't interested. They fell asleep. They started talking. They were listening to music. They, you know, they just switched off. So, yeah, you've got to think about making it relevant to the audience you're working with, whether you're working with a group of teens, whether you're working with a family, whether you're working with adults, where you're working, making it relevant to them. What you said yesterday to a group of adults may not be relevant today to a group of teens. Part of the responsibility of that is on the tour operator to make sure that they've got a sense of tour descriptions and the way they market and the way they sell and the way they even describe the tours to their own staff. I've seen often such a disconnect between what the customer really does want on the ground and what the tour operator thinks they're selling or the way they're describing it. And it's it's very funny. And, and I don't know exactly what's going on with that, uh, to be honest. An architecture tour of 42nd Street led by your PhD, you know, level guide. Great. I, I led those. First of all, I'm not a PhD level guide. Second of all, I'm not highly trained in architecture. And guess what? I think I delivered a fantastic 42nd Street tour because I realized that people might be buying that product uh, uh, because it sounds good. But on a basic level, they're still human beings that want to be, want to feel a connection to a place. And and that doesn't necessarily require a PhD. It's good that you know things. It means your facilitated dialogue is way more facilitated and, and can bring out nuances. But my Lord, you mentioned city guides. Uh, I started my life as a professional guide in Paris, France. And anywhere you have to go to school for three years and get these professional lanyards and certifications and badges that the police will beat you if you don't have one uh, when talking about it. Yep. That is a hard uh, environment in which to begin to think about this different way of what a human being wants. Yeah, and I think with licensing and certification and 
programs, most of them are based on the content. Um, and very few of them, although things are changing, the people I speak to said things are, are definitely changing, but very few of them have a focus on, on family tours, for example, how to work with children, how to engage children, how to connect with groups, how to create safety and trust, all of these how questions. They, they focus on the what much more, not so much on the manner in which it might be delivered. Um, and once someone's done a, a however long three-year certification, they've then got to learn how to be with people. And it shouldn't be that way. You know, it should be right from the start. It should be paired with the information and the knowledge so that you're able to be able to share your knowledge in an, in an interesting way. Because we're not talking about lecturers in a university just lecturing people these days. It's, it's the most engaging tours are the people who know how to handle information in the right way and use it as a tool to engage people. Great. All you and I have to do is go door to door across the countries of Europe and change their long ingrained professional training habits. Yeah, well, I'm on a mission. Uh, it shouldn't take long. <laughs> it is a mission. It is a mission. It's a mission that I share with you and have loved this um, first tourpreneur discussion uh, for our community to be introduced to your thoughts around this and to begin this discussion. I hope that you will come back and endure my questioning of you because I think this topic is the core of what a tour operator should be thinking about. And that's my mission. My mission is, yes, marketing is important and sales is important and business strategy is important. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I run four businesses. You've got to have all of that. But sometimes a lot of the problems that you're solving on that level are easier solved with a phenomenal product. And that phenomenal product is powered by a great guide. Claire, uh, thank you so much for being an entrepreneur. We'll link all of your socials and all of your websites and resources in the show notes and on the blog post to learn more. Um, Claire Bound, thank you for being here. Absolute pleasure, Mitch. Anytime. <laughs>